One of the main ingredients in our product line, Saffron, has been proven over and over again in clinical double-blind placebo trials to be an effective form of treatment for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years for these purposes, and now the research is here to finally back it up, proving that plant medicines and ancient healing practices can actually be an effective alternative to pharmaceuticals. From caffeine-free latte powders to saffron baths and capsules, there's something for any modern woman looking for ancient healing. Again, that's code the fullest podcast at checkout for 15% off. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Boswick, and today's guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton, who's a hormone expert, a nutrition scientist, and thought leader in women's medicine. She's a board certified in naturopathic endocrinology, and she's trained in clinical sexology. And she's also the author of Is This Normal? A non-judgmental guide to creating hormone balance, eliminating unwanted symptoms, and building the sexual desire you crave. Hi, Dr. Brighton. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining. I'm so excited to talk with you. I have been following along for a while now, and I'm so excited about your book. And I just really appreciate like everything that you share and all your messages. And I, I just feel so aligned with everything. So it's just exciting to have you on and, and learn more about you and how you got into this field of work. So maybe we can start there. Yeah. Well, thank you for all of that. I appreciate it. And I appreciate, you know, not just your kind words, but you being part of my community. That's fantastic. So my beginning a long time ago, I got interested in nutrition because I was a very sick kid whose doctor said that nutrition would have no benefits. And it turned out it had a lot of benefits. So I started my journey uh, getting a degree in nutrition science. I eventually discovered naturopathic medicine, decided to go that route. And while in naturopathic medical school, really had an epiphany sitting in class that so much of women's medicine was done to them, not with them in partnership, that we're mostly just told, here's what to do, these are the only things, and don't ask any questions and sent along our way. And I really set out to do something different and to serve women in a different way. And while in clinical practice, I realized like I love one-on-one, -on -one, I really wanted to have a much bigger impact. And my goal being to put medicine into women's hands so they can take care of themselves at home and know when and how to advocate for themselves at their doctor. I completely agree. I think that yeah, like you said, it doesn't matter whether it's Western medicine or naturopathic integrative medicine, it's really hard to find a practitioner that's working with you and like helping you tap back into your own intelligence and body that you have, like, you know yourself the best. So it's like people just need to like kind of reframe their perspective and feel empowered to really understand their body and I, and that's really what you're doing right is you're really educating women about their body and um giving them the education that we never had so what and why are women not educated on our bodies 
Oh gosh, like that's the golden question, right? <laughs> like the everybody wants to know why is it? Well, we don't have medically accurate sex education happening across every state in the United States. In fact, there's only 18 states that provide it. And whenever you say sex education, people are like, oh, the sex stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, our reproductive hormones are part of the sex stuff. But when it's not medically accurate, the information regarding our cycles, our bodies, our symptoms, that's also not accurate. As I say, it's normal. If it's not medically accurate, it's just not accurate. And so there's that piece. There's also that like, you know, I'll hear people argue, well, your mom should have taught you this. Your parents should have taught you this. Well, who taught them? I had to go to medical school. A lot of the people that you're hearing from, from social media, on social media that are reputable and who are talking about these things in depth, they went to decades worth of schooling. Like they were in school for a very long time to acquire this information. So I think it's unfair to be like, well, your mom should have just taught you. Well, who taught her? Then we have the conundrum of the seven minute to 15 minute doctor's visits where you don't get a lot of time with your doctor. They don't share a lot of information and they don't really have the time to educate you and teach you about your body, which leaves us to the internet. And where we go, wandering, looking for answers. And sometimes you find good stuff. Sometimes you don't find good stuff. Sometimes you don't know what you can trust. And that's a big reason why I wrote my book is so that people could have a trustworthy source to get the information that's judgment-free, that is also going to be coming from a perspective of you know your body, you can figure out your normal, trust your normal, and meet your body where it's at. Because a lot of the times, I mean, pre-social media, where where did we go for this information where we got unbiased information? A lot of the times we're told things are normal that simply just aren't normal or we shouldn't have to deal with. And I think with the you know invention of social media and the way that it has evolved, we're all really waking up to that reality. I completely agree. And we I actually just had that conversation with another doctor. It was the same thing. It's like social media has supported people in pursuing their wellness journey in a way, which is really interesting at the same time when you're like sitting there scrolling, you know, it's like obviously a wonderful thing and it could be detrimental as well, but there, depending on how you use it, it could really support you in your education, um, depending on obviously who you're following and stuff. But so I love how you talk about a lot about like women and our menstrual cycle and, um, I, you know, our hormones. And again, like it, we just don't know that much about it. And you share a lot about the orgasm gap. And this is all like connected to the fact that we just don't understand our anatomy. We don't understand our cycle. So first I want to ask you, like, are you a menstruating woman? I am. I'm on my period right now. (laughs) I just started this morning. How did you know? (laughs) (laughs) I just had a hunch. Um, Yeah. So I kind of like got into this I've been in the wellness space for a long time. And even with so many things, it's like intermittent fasting, for example. Like, do you think that that's optimal for women? Is that good for women's hormones? A menstruating woman, like there's so many things that may be good, but maybe they're just optimized for men and not for women. So what are some of the things that you would say are in the mainstream kind of biohacking, really great for wellness, but actually not great for women? Oh, I love that you asked this. I actually traveled all the way to the UK to give a talk entirely on this (laughs) at a biohacking conference and talking through the points of the menstrual cycle and how 
some things can be applied to a cycling, uh, you know, set of ovaries, but other things are not going to be applied to those. And so why I say a cycling set of ovaries is that if you do not have ovaries or your ovaries are no longer cycling, then that's a different story. When your hormones are in that state, they are more closely matched to a man's. And that's why some people will say, oh, well, once I went into menopause or people say I'm in menopause and fasting has been fantastic for me. Like I feel amazing. And that can be true because it's a different stage of life. But what, what is happening when you're cycling is that you're in your reproductive year. So whether or not you want to have a baby and, or you've had fertility struggles or you know, you're anywhere on that spectrum, the reality is, is that cycling hormones are set up for reproductive health. And I don't like always just reducing people to that, but it's important to understand that your body has to evaluate the environment and ask, is this safe or is it not safe for me to be pregnant at this time? Pregnancy is not a neutral state. Pregnancy is very demanding on the body. It is very demanding on the heart, the kidneys, all of our major organs, and it does come with inherent risks. If the environment isn't plentiful with food, that's the signal you're giving with fasting, right? It's not a good time to have a baby. And if that is true, then it is a good time to perhaps consider shutting down ovulation altogether, which is the extreme that we see a functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. Losing your period before menopause is never a good thing. If you just had a baby, it hasn't come back, that's a different story. But if you've lost your period, especially because you have been fasting or following, you know, hit exercises that are maybe too intense, these kinds of things, it is a signal from the environment that you've provided that there is so much stress that reproduction, the, the, the act of ovulating, which is what precedes menstruation, it's why you lose your period is because you lost ovulation. This is too costly to us right now. We have to not do this. We need to save our energy. So when we talk about intermittent fasting, you're absolutely right. This has been applied to men in the research and then taken to social media, to doctor's offices, because it's not just social media, like there's doctors out there pushing this as well, but this has been taken and pushed on women in some capacity or another. And women are told like, this is great for you, this would be wonderful. So we talked about the extreme, you could lose your period, but there's also the concept that certain times of your cycle, you're, you're gonna fail. Like you're gonna totally fail at intermittent fasting and then you're gonna receive the common narrative of society that you lack willpower or uh, something's wrong with you or you're just weak or whatever people like to say when they just don't live in your own body or understand like the way things actually work. What is going on, as I explained in my book, is that during the luteal phase, your caloric needs increase and your insulin sensitivity slightly decreases. This is normal. This should happen those two weeks before your period. But when that happens, that means you're going to be hungrier, you're actually going to need more calories, and you may be burning more calories as well. Not to mention that your serotonin levels and your estrogen levels, they're, they're dropping a bit in relation to progesterone. Progesterone's taking the lead, and that's also going to increase your appetite as well. That is all by design. Luteal phase, not a great time to try intermittent fasting. When you would wanna try intermittent fasting, would be in that late follicular phase that's preceding ovulation 
because that is when we, we don't require as many calories. We uh, have the, the, the weak suppression of our appetite that's coming from estrogen. And we find like we can get by with like more stressful things. But should you skip days at a time? Not unless you're under doctor supervision and you're doing something like a fast protocol that's for autoimmune disease or uh, neurological disease, things like that. And that should be done under your doctor's supervision. Otherwise, you know, fasting where you, you end up going like 16 hours might not be problematic, but you have to listen to your own body. If you're struggling with adrenal issues, thyroid issues, this is not for you right now. If you're pregnant, you're breastfeeding, this is not for you right now. And if you are someone who's like, well, what, what, like, don't we all kind of fast? You are absolutely right. So the ideal is to close your kitchen and not open it up for another 12 hours. What is that? Eat dinner at night, wake up, eat breakfast. That's fasting then that is something that has been packaged up as like this major, uh, you know, selling point by a lot of these health gurus of like, oh, fasting is like this great phenomenal thing. And, and what it is, is like, don't eat after dinner and then eat breakfast in the morning. Yeah. And we have known for a very long time, not only is this great for your hormones, it's great for your gut health as well. So um, a lot of people are not familiar with the relationship between melatonin and insulin. Melatonin is a weak suppressant, and, and I say weak because it's not like you're gonna totally shut down your pancreas from working, but it will suppress the pancreas from producing insulin. This is why we don't wanna eat at night. Even our pancreas doesn't produce digestive enzymes as well in the evening so that we don't digest, digest our food as well. And so we know this all physiologically speaking, there are benefits to not eating after dinner, not late night snacking. And it, you know, it absolutely can have a profound effect if you're somebody who loves to do Netflix and like a bowl of popcorn until you fall asleep. Wow. I love all of that information. So if someone isn't pregnant or nursing and they want to go on like a not fast, but do some sort of like detox or cleanse or panchakarma, something like that, like the best time would be right before ovulation. Well, if you're talking about, so when you talk about a detox or cleanse, that's different than what we think about for intermittent yeah. fasting. And I think you actually brought up a really good point is that there are religious reasons to fast. There are spiritual practices. And the thing about it is they don't care about where you're at, your menstrual yeah. cycle. Yeah. So um, honor that. And if you are uh, having this spiritual practice and that requires you to fast and you're in that late follicular phase, so that week before your period, you got to dial back lifestyle. You got to dial back lifestyle and you really got to up the self-care, which fortunately a lot of these spiritual practices also include like a self-care component. So it works yeah. out in that way. When you talk about detoxing, you know, when, so there's a lot of things that people mean when they say detox. When I think about detox, I think about the way that we support our body's natural process. So everybody, if you're not familiar, your liver, your bowels, your skin, your kidneys, even your lungs, they're detoxing all of the time. When we talk about medical support of a detox, that is supporting the body and what it's already doing. You can really do that at any time because you're, you're detoxing all the time. If you're thinking about like, oh, well, I really want to, you know, do like a, a food option and approach to that, there are different ways to eat with your cycle. I talk about this in the book. I actually give you a full meal plan and recipes and all of that and help you understand like things that you can be eating that support your detoxification pathway. So like cruciferous vegetables and bringing those in. 
depending on the symptoms you, you struggle with, it can be helpful to focus on the liver detoxification and bowel detoxification of estrogen before you get to your period. So in that luteal phase as a way to mitigate PMS. So it just depends on, on what's going on. So like castor oil packs and enemas and uh, we're really like big supporters and we have a product that for vaginal steaming, like mm -hmm. before the period starts, which really helps with really shedding that uterine lining, making sure you have like fresh red blood and you're getting all the stagnation out. But I love that in terms of like what phase to really match it up in. Cause obviously you could do that anytime and that's really helpful. But you know, I think that sometimes this information can be a lot for people. Right. Yeah. But I think that when you start to dive in and dig in and you're really into it, it's like an onion and you can peel it layer by layer and then you can really start to add things little by little and it can really support your like you said your hormone balance overall because like as women we're just so different and we just are we're just so unique in the way that our body works and it's so complex and so much of modern medicine just doesn't share any of this information. So it's just really great that you're sharing even the food aspect, food component of what to eat and when. And I think that, like you said, like you can, if you're really doing strenuous exercise, like you can lose your period and that's a sign of your hormones not being in balance. So it's your body talking to yourself. And I think that the idea of like really going hard on exercising all throughout the cycle is something that we need to be looking at. So like, I don't like to work out the first couple of days of my period. It just doesn't feel right to me. Like mm -hmm. walking is what feels best, you know, and I think that it helps with moving everything out. But what are some other tips you have in terms of movement during your cycle? Oh, I, so I love that you bring up walking. I think that it's just the unsung hero of movement. So the thing about walking is that you are moving your pelvis and that is going to help with circulation in the pelvic area. We sit a lot, we sit a lot in our culture. And so walking is really helpful in that regard. It's also really helpful because the crossbody action of moving your limbs helps with the integration of both lobes of your brain, which we know are doing better in communicating during the follicular phase. So it is a great time to be incorporating walking. I think you really need to listen to your body. I think there is a lot of really great information out there about how we you know, should or shouldn't exercise throughout our cycle, but you really need to respect and listen to your body and recognize that there's gonna be other influences that dictate how you feel or what's expected of you. And just because you're about to start your period, for example, that's when we'd say like, dial it back a bit. You know, the US soccer team, the goal that was that, that won the cup, that was kicked by a woman who started her period the next day. So just because you're menstruating doesn't mean that like, oh, you're, you're gonna be weaker and you can't do these things. And so I think the other thing we should talk about is that the changes in progesterone, I actually, I'll use this example that I work out in my living room, my kids will see me, and this workout routine I was doing, they were doing jumping knees. My son is like, why are you not doing jumping knees? And I'm like, because mama, 
is in her luteal phase and my progesterone's really up and when your progesterone's up you're at a higher risk of knee injury and I'm doing this barefoot on my carpet with kids around and toys and like that already is a risk like so I am just not going to risk it by jumping in the air right now a different part of my cycle like I would go for it but it's those kinds of things like just knowing that like okay I could be more prone to an injury with my joints and ligaments at this time so does that mean I don't exercise? No, I might modify it or I might be like very aware in ways that I wouldn't be uh, other times. It's not uncommon to get more clumsy right before and during your period. So that's something else to keep in mind that if you're somebody who tends to just like zone out while you work out, this is not the time to do it. The other thing is that as we were saying, I was saying like, oh, you have like that late follicular phase and around ovulation with testosterone, estrogen going up, you can hit things harder. This is also where like hit routines, strength training. So giving a personal example with myself, I'm still continuing my strength training, but right now I'm not going to try to max out my loads. I'm on my period right now in the next seven days. I'm going to start trying to max out and go even harder with that. And this is something that's just following a natural cycle that athletes would do anyways of going into your max, like pushing harder, putting the stress on your body to elicit the change because that's what exercise in and then dialing back into a recovery. I just use my cycle to follow it. And what about women who don't have a cycle, like um, women in menopause or premenopause? How can they use it? Can they use this information still? Or is it more like you can kind of use the moon as a cycle, as a way to like regulate? Yeah, great question. So in perimenopause, before you get to menopause, you're still going to be cycling and things can definitely be thrown off. Like that last year before you get into menopause, you might be going like 60 days with your cycle. So then you're like, well, how do I follow this whole four day thing? And you want to follow your body, but you can also follow along with the moon cycle. But this is where I think it is really the most powerful to tune into your cyclical self during your fertile years. So during the cycling years, understand your body, because then when you get to perimenopause and the cycle, you no longer have this predictable bleed leading you. You still have your intuition. You still have knowing your body leading you through that. When it comes to menopause, great thing about menopause is, you can lift, you can lift weights and you don't have to worry about where you're at. And you should, you should be lifting weights and doing strength training because it's so important for keeping your muscle mass, your bone mass, your brain health, your heart health. And, you know, we also want to bring in, so I talk a lot about like strength training and stuff, uh, but the cardiovascular component is important as well. That's how we keep that visceral, that body fat that gets around our organs and causes chronic disease. That's how we keep that at bay. It is important to recognize that as we age, we are supposed to gain some weight. And while society, like I just saw something on Instagram that was like, are you in perimenopause, but you want to fit into your like high school jeans? Like this is how, and I'm like, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to have that body anymore. Like that was a body still going through puberty. Like how weird, how weird is it that people are marketing that like you should have this developing body that wasn't done developing. Like you should go back to that. Like that doesn't even make sense. But then for them to negate all the research that exists that shows that in our 40s, 50s, 60s beyond, when we have a little more padding, we have a lower mortality rate. So before then, you know, if we are having, so at any age, if you have visceral adiposity that's fat around your organs, that's always problematic. But we see this curve where it's like, oh, 
you know, if your weight is up, then you're at higher risk of these diseases. Once we get into that postmenopause, it actually changes. It's that if your weight is down, you are at higher risk of death. And so this is really important to keep in mind is that just because I'm telling you like exercise, like build weights and like, you know, do the cardio and, you know, within reason, don't push over, do the cardio. That's not good uh, either. But I'm telling you all this, it is not from the perspective of the way you should look. It is about disease prevention and the way that you should feel. Hey everyone, I am so excited to share with you a company that I've admired for so long called Shepherd's Dream. They've been devoted to making the highest quality all natural bedding on earth made from eco wool, organic cotton, and responsibly sourced latex. The reason I love their heirloom quality mattresses so much is because not only are they free of anything harmful, chemical, or synthetic, but they actually offer all wool, 100% wool mattresses that don't have any springs in them. And from some of my interviews in the past, I've actually learned that some of these springs can be conducting energy along with different telephone poles, wires, cell phone towers, things like that. So if you really want the most restful sleep that also is not conducting any energy in terms of EMFs, this is the mattress to go for, to have for your family so that you're wrapped in pure, safe, healthy, luxurious comfort that's gonna last for years. Discover the practical magic of mattresses and bedding that honor you and the earth. For 10% off your Shepherd's Dream order, use code THEFULLEST at checkout. And I think that's why we're, you know, more and more people are hungry for this because they're hopefully not chasing the external. The external comes along with the internal. And I that's kind of like this idea of these healing rituals that different cultures have done for centuries because they did the the things that they're doing for inside out beauty mm. for inside out wellness it felt good it balanced them and therefore it probably looked good too you know yeah but um yeah i'm just curious because i think that like and especially our audience we have a lot of women that are in their you know obviously have their active for fertile years or they're like pregnant in the postpartum stage and like also looking for tweaks in that stage but beyond, it's like, um, you know, we have their mothers that are following along, that are listening and people that are menstruating, that are that are um, in menopause listening. And so many of the women that I know, like my own mother, like she just got a hysterectomy. And I just feel like yeah. the hysterectomy situation is insane because I don't know any women that like all my aunts, um, my friends, moms, my own mother, like everyone has had a hysterectomy. Like, what's the deal there? Okay, so there's no judgment to whatever people choose to do with their body, but we have to recognize that if you are cycling and you have hormone problems, the answer is birth control pills. If you are not cycling and you have period problems, hormone problems, you know, and I say period problems, um, if you're not cycling and you start having disordered uterine bleeding is what that is, which is definitely uh, problematic and you need to see your doctor. But the answer is hysterectomy. So it's always being like, do you want a baby and you're in your reproductive years? If the answer is no, just shut down your reproductive system. If you are no longer in your reproductive years, just remove your reproductive system. And it comes from this very male-dominated, male-centric approach to the human body. And that is that medicine for a very long time, as soon as we started taking it out of midwives' hands and, and putting into what is today modern medicine, it became the male body is the standard of perfection 
nutrition and health to which everything should be compared to. And then we have this inferior model over here with the baby making accessories. And because we lose the capacity to menstruate at one point in our life, it will come for all of us if we live long enough and that's the goal. Because of that, so much of medicine and so many people just see it as something that is expendable, not necessary. But the reality is, is that we understand very, very little about female anatomy when we put it into the grand scheme of things. I, the, I have spent decades in health and the longer I spend in it, it's so funny because I'm like board certified in hormones and like I know all of these things and I know enough to say that we do not know enough. We do not know enough. The uterus interacts with our immune system in what capacity and how and what like what happens when we remove it in a postmenopausal woman nobody's asked the question because nobody cares can you have a baby no then what does it matter to us and that is really problematic and so i don't say this to shame anybody there are certainly there certainly is a time and a place for a hysterectomy there's certainly a time and place for all of these medical interventions and as it is your body it is absolutely your choice how you approach it but i do think from the perspective of what medicine is doing, we need to take a pause and stop being so flippant of just cutting things out of women. That is beautiful. And yeah, I think that a lot of times it's just suggested or just done during another procedure. Like my mom had no idea that they oh were doing- Oh my God. That, and so- I've heard that a lot. Yeah, I come from a large um, Hispanic family and forced sterilizations is something that really like this non-consensual medicine that takes liberties with the female body. I talk in my book about labiaplasty. I talk in my book about the husband stitch. I have done medical presentations about the overwhelming sterilization that happened to the women in Puerto Rico, the same women that were birth control was tested on them. And yeah. everybody said like, well, you know, they had to do this. It was for the greater good, except they never made birth control available to these women. And instead, by the time the 1970s hit, a third of the population was, it was sterilized with no informed consent. And this happens a lot in the Latino community, the Latinx community. And as much as people are like, that's a thing of the past, it was happening in the camps at the border just a few years ago. And it's still, there are states that still take liberties with women's bodies. Uh, while they're under an anesthetized, uh, having residents come in and practice pap smears on them and practice placing a speculum and then having surgeries where their doctor's like, well, while I'm here, we might as well just take your uterus because like you don't actually need it. I'm doing you a favor. Like, bitch, that is not doing somebody a favor. That yeah. is assaulting their body. <laughs> so... I mean, it's not funny. It is horrible. It's disgusting. I just got a little, I went on, I know I popped off there. No, I love it, no, I love it because we need that as women. We need someone to advocate for us. And, and that's what you're doing. And it's so important. Like you said, we, we are no longer, um, especially in this country, you know, in Europe, it's still different, even though midwives were like, still like their education was taken away still like at least there's 70 80 percent of women i believe that are still going to midwives whereas in this country it's like less than 10 percent yeah crazy. well there's a, so the countries if this is what's interesting if you look at the countries with the best birth outcomes a lot of them are using midwives and women go to midwives unless they're high risk and at which point if they're high risk then that is where the OB-GYN is involved. And that's perfect. That's exactly how that system would work because OB-GYNs yeah. are 
arguably the best trained to handle that emergency situation in labor, to do a surgery. I mean, that is where they shine. But in the US, we force them into just taking every single birth. And we have to look at, and I'm not saying this is the OB-GYN's fault. I think we've got systemic issues all throughout healthcare. We are among the worst, man, when it comes to developed nations. It is just so staggering when you look at the birth outcomes. And if you are a black woman, it is only getting worse. If you are a Latina during the pandemic, the rates of maternal mortality, morbidity, like, oh my gosh, did those rise and nobody is talking about it. We are supposed to be this great nation, but we don't care for our women and we, we don't care for people the way that we really should in a society. And most of the um, birth outcomes that you're talking about, it happens postpartum, right? So there's a lot of things that can happen postpartum. And so some of them are happening in the hospital and then there are postpartum complications that can come up. And so when we think about cases like Serena Williams, I think was a really big one that caught people's attention. Postpartum, everybody thinks like, oh, you have a baby and then everything's fine. Like the risk is gone. Postpartum, we can have risk of blood clots, strokes, uh, pulmonary embolisms. We can have hypertension. Um, that hypertension can become malignant so so dangerous that you can die from it so it is something that again whenever people act like oh being pregnant no big deal it is a huge stress on the body to be pregnant it is not a neutral state whatsoever and postpartum comes with its risks as well in your perfect world do you mind telling us like what what it looks like in terms of care for a pregnant woman and postpartum. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not a birth provider. So I know somebody who is, is going to be like, but she's not even a birth provider, but I am a person who's birthed two children. And I would say, so I'm going to say some things and I want everybody to know you have to make your own individual choices. So I had home births. Um, my first son, he was born at home and with two midwives, they were naturopathic midwives. So they were physicians and midwives. Um, the second son, I actually went to Mexico and had him. Wow. Um, there was an unfortunate situation that came up with a lot of OB-GYNs really saying some awful things about me on social media. And I met with one OB-GYN in the States and she was like, I'm not interested in treating you because so-and-so and so-and-so has said these things about you. And I'm like, you know, I'm already in a place that doesn't have really great birth outcomes. We were in the, this is 2021, we're in the post-pandemic era, but like still things are not, um, they're not ideal. And I'm like, the obstetric violence is so high in the United States. Why would I subject myself to that? Especially when there could be any kind of tainted anything about who I am as a person. And my husband during that visit was like very uncomfortable. He was like, this is outrageous. And I'm like, well, it is the ethical thing to do to advise me that like, you're not, you're not interested in treating me. I actually found an OB-GYN in Mexico who does home births. And this, I really feel like is an ideal scenario. Whether or not you want to have a home birth, maybe having a, you know, even if it's in a hospital where there's a wing that has a birth center. So what I'm alluding to is a place that feels like it's meant for birth and not meant for surgery. And yeah. I think your nervous system knows the difference. I don't think those bright lights overhead and the let's hook you up to an IV and monitors and make it so you can't move. And like really the, the way that birth has become a pathology, so to speak, rather than a natural event that sometimes needs interventions, I think is really problematic. So my home birth in Mexico had an OB-GYN 
had a general surgeon, had a neonatologist, and had a doula all at my birth. I had my son in a tub, and my doula was actually the one who was leading everything. Not leading the medicine, but leading like who do who do we need when like she's asking for um her husband let's make sure that her husband is here she wants him in the tub with her she was there to hold my hand even the general surgeon came and like held my hand and you know she's like a pcp general surgeon um situation it's interesting how they're trained there but she was like holding my hand she was like putting washcloths on me and it was a lot more of just witnessing what was happening and supporting me with what I needed and not, I mean, I only got a cervical check because I asked for it. And I was like, I just need to know because I'm a data-driven person and I just need to understand. Otherwise they were like, there's no reason to do any of these things. Like let's allow, like we, you know, there was fetal heart rate monitoring, of course, like the, the things that were necessary were done and anything that's outside of that wasn't done. It was a wonderful experience. I had my son in like a matter of hours. I ended up requiring stitches, which were done in a bed and they were done well. And I didn't get a husband stitch or anything like that. The doula stayed with me, made sure that nursing, like that we were able to nurse, that I was getting food, that I was getting water. And they did lots of follow-up with me. There was lots of checking in on me. The doula came back and like, you know, was helping even more with, uh, nursing and just really supportive and you know when people hear this so people I've talked to they're like oh I bet that was so expensive I'm like it was cheaper than my copay would have been in the United States it was cheaper than my copay and it was wonderful and yes it was a oh so I was also 40 and so people know I'm considered high risk the birth center was seven minutes away and I was evaluated even the day before I went into labor to make sure that I was still safe for a home birth and if there was anything that was not looking safe, not looking good at all. There was no question that we were going to the birth center and then attached and the birth center was like the biggest room I've ever seen in a hospital <laughs> with like this giant jacuzzi and all, all this stuff. And like, it looks pretty amazing, but the birth center was also attached to surgery and everything that I would need. But the birth center was like where I would be giving birth didn't feel like that super high level medical intervention. So that's what I really see as having the ideal is being able to have a supportive team that has the skill set to be there for you in an emergency to make sure that you are taken care of and at the same time allow it just steps out of the way and allows the process to happen as it's meant to that was i think really astounding my first birth i think was really great as well but i didn't have like a neonatologist present yeah. like that was amazing um to have a neonatologist uh, there that was like if anything happens with the baby i'm here i'm here for it i can i can do that and that's a lot of the concerns with home births is like if something yeah. happens with the baby you only have about 90 seconds to get that baby breathing again otherwise it's all downhill from there and so having that person i just think that it was just such an incredible incredible experience and then i got to eat mexican food so <laughs> Cheers <amazing>. to that. <laughs> how, so did you, like, it just so happens that their home births there have a neonatologist? This is a specific group that okay. um, has this all set up. So they, they have it all set up to be able to provide this. They're called Salud Primal. I love them. Shout them out all the time. 
Um, but they have it all set up so that um, they got the right people at the right time and they're just offering something really unique. Because Mexico has high C-section rates as well. When I dug into it though, the majority are elective, that women are like, I don't wanna have to deal with childbirth. You know, it's so painful, it's so awful. I, I will say I hate childbirth, it is so painful and so <laughs> awful. I have a friend, she has five kids that she's like, when I'm laboring, like I'm in my power, like that's my place, like I'm so oh good at it. Gosh. And I'm just like, damn, I wanna be you, but I'm not you, I'm just me who's like grunting and screaming and being like, I hate this. Like, And it's so funny how, uh, we all have our own experiences. I think we need to hold space for it. But whenever I talk about it online, women are like, your problem is you're so negative in birth. And I'm like, oh, honey, <laughs> the way I try to be so zen, my first birth, I tried to be so zen. And so like, oh, follow the breath down and the cervix is a lotus and it's opening and all of that. And it, I was in active labor for 19 hours. It was horrible. And the moment that like, I just came, I was laboring in the bathroom and I came out and I just said to my husband, like, get over here and hold my hands. I'm getting on all fours. My midwives were like, well, like that's not the, like, you know, the best position. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what you do. This is what you do. Like I'm doing this. And then the baby was out 10 minutes later. And that my second birth, it was four hours from start to finish. And that one, I just did not even deny for a second that I was like, I feel like a primal growl. And that is yeah. what I'm going to do. And that baby came so quick. So I say all of that because what you need to honor in birth is who the hell you are and what you need to do. And like, just do that. I completely agree. I feel like and I had a hospital birth for my first and a home birth for my second. And I wanted a home birth for my first, but I didn't have... I was so scared and my husband was like so scared that we yeah just, like, i mean birth is scary about. especially the yeah. first time <laughs> especially the first time. i mean i wish that and i knew so much but i still just like gave up that power because i was so scared and i thought i would just labor at home and go there but like all the interventions started just because the hospital was involved but yeah i think that like what i learned and i got an epidural the first time i didn't want one but i ended up with it like 30 something hours later yeah and like i think that's so much part of it too there's you just are a different human after you give birth there's just yeah. no other way of explaining it and you went through this experience that changes you forever and i think the more you honor it the more you let out like screaming doing everything that you can to really just like get that power like the smoother it goes that was my experience like just letting it out and i think it's so it is very similar to like I mean, not saying I'm like a loud person when I'm having sex at all, but like, I think a lot about sex. I'm way louder in birth. <laughs> yeah. like, I just feel like being who you are and like letting go. And that's what all of these experiences, we're so lucky to be a woman, to be able to have these moments to really experience ourselves and get to know ourselves better and tap into our intuition and birth and sex and having our period and postpartum are all like initiations into that. And I just, I feel so blessed to be a woman and to have people like you that share this and educate women and like support us. Like the name, is this normal for your book? Like it's so important because we don't know what's normal. And our like my mom and I have my, I'm Iranian. So I have like my culture to really like go back to and kind of understand like what traditional Iranian medicine says. But even with that, like I'm first generation and my mom like totally was like 
taken from her mother when she was giving birth and she was so lost in this country. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's so lost, you yeah. know? And, and I think she gave up so much because she was scared and she wasn't well equipped and she was young that like, I didn't have that. So I had to dig deep and research, but like, luckily I had some culture and something to like go back to. And I think what's so cool about the United States is that we have so many different cultures to refer to mm -hmm. that we can incorporate, but it's just the matter of like digging deep, being curious, under learning about it. And, and so much of like what our country is about is like chasing this idea of like materialism and like being a certain way in society and, and like our needs have changed our wants, our needs, like what we're curious about has changed. And that's why it is cool to have a platform that you have to share this because someone can stumble on it and come into your world. And finally it all makes sense. And maybe, you know, like it's true, like it, this whole idea of sex education and educating the woman and educating children is so terrifying for people because there are families that want to be able to offer this to their children, but they don't know, like you mm -hmm. said. So then someone does have to offer it and it does happen in school and it's completely botched. Well, like, thank goodness for you and maybe mothers that are in you know listening to this recording can really dive into your book and really pay attention for their own bodies for passing this information down this information that was lost for women because we lost access to this when men took over mm -hmm. in a lot of ways in a lot of ways we absolutely did you know i do want to i would be remiss if i didn't comment on the fact that you said you got an epidural like you didn't want one and you got one and i think for anybody listening it's really important to understand that Epidurals happen, C-sections happen, home births are intended and then they don't happen or they do happen when they weren't intended. And there's a lot of things that go exactly how we want or in no way how we want when we go through childbirth. And I think the most important thing is, do we have a healthy mother? Do we have a healthy baby? And that's really what we should focus on at the end of the day. And I just want to say that because sometimes women are like, you know, they feel like the fact that I had an unmedicated birth, they're like, oh, you're, you're saying you're better than someone or something like that. And the reality is, is that uh, genetically, I, I don't get numb. I don't stay numb. I don't stay under. It takes more anesthetic. I've been, I've woken up in general surgery because of that. So I already knew epidurals off the table for me because even if I got it, it wasn't going to last. It, I just genetically yeah. cannot. I've had to have mole removals with like not being numb um, and dental and like all kinds of stuff because it just doesn't work for me and so um to understand that that was also part of my decision is just like man i i can't even get the good stuff so like, <laughs> i just gotta go for it with all of that but i appreciate everything you're saying because is this normal i wrote it for the adult woman however I am hearing from so many mothers and fathers. Oh my gosh, the number of men who are like, I'm reading this book so I can help my daughter is so amazing. A friend of mine, it's so funny because when you're in the, I had a baby, I was writing this book while I had a baby on a carrier at my treadmill desk, like writing a book, <laughs> keeping him asleep. And um, I, my friend, I didn't even get in contact with her. We'd been chatting about everything but my book. And I didn't even tell her I had a book coming out. And then she's like, you're never gonna believe this. My 19 year old comes into the house 
gushing about this book. They're all taught, like her and her friends are all sitting on the couch talking about this book, how amazing this book is, how like they've learned so much, it's changing their life. She's like, they just won't shut up. It's like a whole bunch of girls in my house, all like, you know, Aww. really high energy. And she's like, what book are you talking about? And they're like, it's called, is this normal? And it's by this doctor and da, da, da. And she's like, let me look at it. And she's like, oh my God, hang on. And she pulled up her phone and showed them a picture of us together. And they were, she was like, the way they screamed, they were like, Whoa. you know her. Oh my God. She's like, yeah, she's a friend. But she texted me. She's like, so why didn't you tell me you had a book coming out? I'm like, oh my God, of all the things we've talked about in the last year, I don't, I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't talk about that thing, even though it's like such a big part of my life. But okay, here we are. That was incredible. That story like made my day. I was like, that is so cool. And she's like, yeah. And she said that like all of the girls in her uh, senior class are all talking about this book. Wow. I wonder if you're going to like go into schools and I mean, do you talk at schools or? Um, I'm actually a homeschooler and I, I do actually teach in the homeschool community. Um, we do sex education and it's a lot of oh mostly period, period power talk um, and a so lot of cool. like how to use your hormones as superpowers in our community. Um, I don't know if I'll make it into schools, uh, but I hope I mean, my book like, makes it As a documentary, <laughs> I'm gonna just like put it out there. So a I'm documentary. But I, I really wanna homeschool my kids and like I'm kind of in that space now that I have to. So, um, cause my son's like about to be five years old. Mm -hmm. So what's your, where do you live? I live in Puerto Rico. Oh my gosh. So I live in an island. easier there or no? Oh, well, what happened is that my oldest son has pandas. It's pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder associated with strep. Big mouthful to say he got strep. It activated an autoimmune disease. It attacked his brain. And wow. so at that point, he had done Montessori and then he did Waldorf and I really do love those programs. But at that point, the school was just like, we can't, like we don't have accommodations for this. The public schools didn't have great options and he couldn't get, we were living in Portland, Oregon at the time. He couldn't get re-exposed to strep. And so if there was a case of strep in the school, he had to be taken out for like several weeks. And then this is like, Portland has like nine months of gray. <laughs> like they're in, there's a lot of like strep going around all the time. So it was like, wow. So we can't like go to school. The schools are like not gonna disinfect and do all of these things that he would need to do. And when he's having, so what would happen in a flare is he would have like OCD tendencies. And then if you interrupt the OCD, uh, pattern from happening, it would evoke rage um, because he would go into fight or flight. Like his nervous system's like, oh my God, you're disrupting this pattern. I'm going to die. Like, and that's a lot to deal with. With a kid, this is where it's like those um, really the silent disabilities. You see a lot of people with autism, ADHD, who are talking about this more, how they struggle with it because they're normal presenting, so to speak. So they're, they don't, you know, they're able bodied, like from appearance wise, but neurologically, there are ways that they struggle. And so that's what it really was for him. And I had to have him in lots of doctor's appointments. And we worked with a uh, functional neurologist for a very long time. His eyes couldn't track uh, left to right. So he couldn't read words. His eyes would like bounce back. So he had reading deficits. He had all this stuff. He's actually been locked in his room all day. I haven't been able to teach him today because he got a new set of books. The child now reads at about an eighth grade reading level. So from a child who at seven, eight, couldn't wow. read, could not read, couldn't like t 
tell you anything. He's now 10. And now he's like, <laughs> seriously, this, like we go to the libraries, we do all this stuff, but this kid costs me so much in books, which as somebody who grew up in poverty and who did never could buy books and stuff, it's like a really, I'm like, this feels like such, yeah. so healing to my my child. Uh, we, we have like little libraries in here. So everybody knows we donate the books afterwards to other Aww. children. Um, but yeah, so that's how we ended up going into homeschooling is that it just became out of necessity. And it was a very big struggle because I was homeschooling a neurodivergent child who had special needs that the schools like that they were no resources people i mean even though one in 200 children are suspected to have pandas most doctors don't even recognize it there's not a lot of resources so it's been a lot of like figuring out things i work with a um i call her my parent coach she's supposed to technically be my child psychologist but all of the <laughs> meetings are like me her and my husband being like okay He's now developed in, in, you know, this is the new thing and what's the best way that we can approach this. And she, uh, because of all of her training is so good. Like she's been my best homeschooling resource for oh. my particular child's needs. Just things like his brain gets super, super fatigued on handwriting and it can even get overstimulated to the point that he has a meltdown and so little thing and i'm just sharing this with people in case this helps you because it helped me yeah. so much just to recognize that like the way the standard school system is set up doesn't work for the majority of people and it in fact is very taxing and very stressful but things like if the goal is math that's not writing that's not the goal so i can do the writing and he can dictate and take me through the whole logic thought process which is yeah. the goal of the math um and so just making accommodations in that way this is a lot of homeschool talk but i think that there are a lot i get reached out to all the time there's so many more people that are interested in it and since i also, I'm an international speaker and I find myself like all over the world on stages. I take my, I get to take my kid with me and yeah. it's a hybrid of unschooling and I'm not like full-blown unschooling and I'm also not full-blown homeschool curriculum. I'm like, we have like the stuff you have to learn, like reading and writing and arithmetic. And then we have the things that you can learn by just what you're interested in. That's that unschooling approach. So but last you're year- doing it. I am doing it, yes, wow. and my husband helps with me. And then um, when we're traveling other places, sometimes I will bring in. So when we were in uh, France last year, I found a nanny for the summer. Well, she for the summer she was off school, and um, she was a school teacher, and so she had taken oh. off. And so I was, she was like, "Oh, do you want me to teach him?" I'm like, ah, "You are French. You grew up in Paris. I want you to take him." to museums and to places, to like places that other people don't go. And I want you to teach him about the history. And I want you to teach him about your experience. And I want you to teach him things that he can't read anywhere else. And so, and just for people who live in the US, childcare is way more affordable in other countries as well, <laughs> if you're curious about that. Um, and it's still a livable wage uh, to people, but there's different ways that I've just had to get really creative in working with things. Um, but he fell in love with art last summer by going to the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and like having the audio set. He's a very good audio learner and um, going through art pieces. And then he came home and he actually, for the first time, this was a really big breakthrough because art was so aggravating to his brain. Like this is a child I used to color with every single day. And once he got pandas, 
he would no longer color he would no longer paint he would not do anything artistic because it was so aggravating to his brain and mm -hmm. after that breakthrough he was like I actually want to try to do art like I want to try again and it was a huge huge moment that I'm like would we have gotten there any other way I don't know there's a lot of privilege in what I'm saying but so people understand I do get paid to travel and to go to these places and speak um and I just want to honor that 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 is definitely a privilege and it is a unique career that I have yeah. but it's so expansive for me because I feel like it's something that I aspire to do and I want to do and figure out how to fit in and I think that the more people weave it into their, you know, life, because that's really what it used to be back yeah. in the day. And yes, it's a very unique situation and not accessible to everyone. You know, we you just don't know. So I think it's important to share that. Well, it's I think. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, is that we, uh, the mistake I made is coming at it of like, this is what I remember school was like. So this is what school's got to be like. And it doesn't have to be. So like real world application of things, like you're going to go grocery shopping, making a list. Like you take these things for granted sometimes, but these are the skills that really are lacking in public school education. The ability to make a list actually helps with our ability to uh, use our brain in ways that we don't get taught. And so this is our you know, prefrontal cortex coming into play and using like going through the list and then doing budgeting. How much do things cost? What do we expect them to cost? Adding that up you're already doing arithmetic and it is real world application going bringing it home and taking them through recipes we're doing applied chemistry now and we are doing fractions because good luck like there's no. like um but uh you know it's it's definitely something that i think we we don't realize how much we can teach even if your your child is going to school um in that way and it doesn't have to be this super stressful thing that is really, really bad for your hormones. It can yeah. be something that's very nourishing to your hormones. And as you're going through a lot of these kinds of activities as well, I think it's important that you also track like how are these things for you and how are these things for, for you throughout your cycle. So even the ability to make a list uh, during your like, late luteal phase and maybe even the beginning of your period might be more difficult. It can be part of PMS that you have cognitive disruption. You find that your executive function, so making lists and sticking to them and having plans, this is executive function. This is something children have to learn to be successful and this is something a lot of adults struggle with and this is something that can get impacted pms pmdd perimenopause menopause and that can actually be a sign of there's hormone dysfunction going on so just to bring it back to the hormone conversation yeah. this is also something for you to pay attention to i love our entire conversation today everything was just so nourishing i love that word it, it's it's all goes back to it's all this like holistic view too. I mean, I think that having kids, being a parent, all that affects your hormones and how you relate to them and how yeah. you incorporate, you know, people into your life that are now people you're protecting, you're supporting, you're, I think it's all part of the conversation. And it's so beautiful to see how you've built your life and how you've done things and, and also the education that you're bringing forward with your book. So Thank you so much for joining us today. It was so wonderful to meet you and, and I'm excited for more people to buy your book and read it and I can't wait to dive into it more. 
Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation and I would love to just hear what people think once they have the book and they're integrating the 28 day program because what I've heard so far is people really just having really big, like mind blown moments of realizing why they have their symptoms and finding solutions that are making those symptoms literally melt away. So exciting. Definitely check out Dr. Jolene Brighton and check out her book, Is This Normal? And where can they find more resources about you? DrBrighton.com is my main hub, D-R-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N. And then you can also find me all over social media at Brighton. That's J-O-L-E-N-E-B-R-I-G-H-T-E-N. Tons of E's, <laughs> but you'll find me. 